0: Uh, as I introduce each one of our panelists, if you would make your way forward. So first, I'm going to ask Tyrell Luttey to to make his way forward. So Tyrell is a buyer for American Foods Group. I met Tyrell at a meeting in Warrington or just outside of Warrington a few months ago as American Foods Group and the Rosen family were narrowing down uh, their options as they looked at how to... Uh, make a future investment in, in the processing industry. So we are so excited, Tyrell, uh, for you, for the Rosen family, and so grateful that you all have chosen Missouri to be the home as you look at expanding your processing footprint. So tell us a little bit about uh, American Foods Group and you, and then we'll invite like, the next panelists up. Sure. Uh, thanks
1: for having me. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tyrell and I yeah, work with American Foods Group, Uh, mentioned the Rosen family, Uh, American Foods Group is a privately held, family owned, American owned uh, meat packing business uh, based out of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Um, Traditionally, uh, that, that started with one facility in Minnesota and grew over the past 40 years into about a daily capacity of about six thousand heads most of which is cow and bull some of which is fed grain fed cows and grain fed uh, dairy influenced cattle Um, about three years ago we started looking into if expansion uh, was something that our ownership family would be interested in and something that was feasible Uh, we started with several sites um, across the country. We rated them on criteria that we felt were most important. We narrowed it down. We narrowed it down. We narrowed it down. Uh, Warren County, Missouri was the site that was chosen. So, and you were all great. A huge part of welcoming American foods to to Missouri. One of the biggest criteria for the family was to be welcomed wherever we went. So if they felt that it was a fight with the community or a just uh, anything objectionable, we're going somewhere else. So congrats to everyone here, really, for for making that happen. Um, we just recently announced that we will break ground in, uh, within uh, probably next month. The facility will be a uh, capacity of 2,400 head a day. About half of that will be grain-fed cows and fed cattle. The other half, cow and bull. So not coincidentally, Missouri being a... A big cow-calf state that was one of our our uh, main selection points so excited to be here all right thanks for having
0: me yep. <laughs> next uh mr bruce rashaun a known face within farm bureau let's see where's tim tim where are you at here i know you're here too there's brother tim so bruce serves as the president of missouri Cattlemen's. The mershawn family has been so entwined and, and far here through the years appreciate your leadership within the calvin's association and why don't you tell us a little bit about your operation with your wife tracy
2: thank you garrett i appreciate the invite to uh share with everybody today it's uh, great to be here and you know american food groups coming to missouri i you just can't amplify that enough what what a game changer that could be for our for our state and for us as producers so Uh, Myself, Bruce, and my wife Tracy at the back who she also serves on the NBIC council as as a board director and my my, uh, younger brother Tim we all work together in Buckner, Missouri. Uh, Tim primarily on on the crops and I lost my pen. I guess I don't take any more notes today. So uh, anyway, thank you sir. And then uh, then Tracy and I focus mostly on the cattle business. We run a cow-calf operation uh, up and down, kind of the western half of the state, uh, scattered through about 13 counties. And then we also background uh, stocker calves uh, in, in small background lots here in Missouri. And then we we retain ownership on all of our steers. Uh, right now they're in, in, in Iowa, Nebraska, or fed in Kansas also, uh, all the way to harvest. Uh, we also feed some of those stalker cattle that we background. Uh, so we're kind of integrated in all facets of commercial cattle business I guess the way we like to put it um, you know we sell bread heifers and uh, and then just trying to grow it and, and our model is a little different uh, than your average folks so about half of our mom cows are out on a daily fee basis with folks with other producers like yourselves you know we provide all the we provide the cattle and all the inputs and they provide a the daily care and forage so uh, so it's about half that about half on at least at least uh, uh, grass farms. and so and now I'm president of Missouri Cattlemen, so I'm very proud to be there. I was Sean getting up here. We were we were last week uh, setting in uh, meetings in Reno, Nevada, uh, Reno, Nevada. Uh, Boring, Reno, Nevada. Anyway, it felt like uh, going through meeting, uh, going through the uh, policies for uh, NCA, much like uh, we've all done every December in uh, at Pantera So, uh, we am proud to be here. I think that's about all. Thanks a lot.
0: we'll get this fixed. So Sean Tiffany, co owner of Tiffany Peat Yards in Kansas. So Sean, tell us a little about your operation. And again, you'll see that we've got a panel that kind of spans the supply chain as we talk about cattle marketing and the issues we're all facing. Yeah, so uh, my brother
3: and I custom cow feeders. started, uh, Started with nothing 15 years ago, literally. And today we have three different facilities, two finishing yards. One's 19,000 head, one's 13,000 head. And then recently acquired last fall, almost a year ago, I guess, uh, 3,500 head drill yards. So we provide custom cow feeding services. uh, Well, really all the way through uh, grazing season. We also graze about 12,000 head on Flint Hills pasture. So we're neck deep in trying to get all those cattle gathered right now and into the feed yards. the, the lion's share of our customer base is gonna be in Eastern Kansas and your state here in Missouri. We have a lot of great customers from Missouri, feed a lot of good Missouri cattle. And that's where we've hung our hat, is uh, being able to feed the best quality cattle and market those in such a way to achieve above above market average value for cattle that are superior in their genetics. And then correlate that carcass data clear back to the cow-calf level to where Folks like yourselves can utilize that data back at the ranch and continue to make improvements. Okay. All right. Thank you, Sean. So, yes, I I am also serving as president-elect of Kansas Livestock Association right now. So I'll be in that leadership role for the next three years. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, welcome. Appreciate the three of you being willing to participate in this discussion.
0: So first. I'd like to get an immediate reaction. I think you've listened to the economists who have been here today. Uh, you heard Scott Brown talk about where he thinks cattle prices are headed. Uh, we've heard you know, a really nice overview from Dr. Fisher. Just maybe what's your reaction about what they say is the current state of the cattle industry and what they're seeing going forward? Whoever wants to start
1: Well, I, I agree with with both analyses, and it, the main takeaway I have for everyone is is look at the drought monitor. It is showing you what is happening with with cow liquidation, beef cow liquidation. Um, we're slaughtering cows, beef cows right now at a rate not seen since the '90s. Um, so. Short term, I don't know what's going to happen. We're going to have a lot more drought-impacted supply up front. Uh, long term, looks like we're going to have a, a lot of bullish reasons to be to be in yeah to be raising calves. So.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I think we've all been feeling it in our communities and in our own operations. <laughs> Uh, Maybe not quite as much here in Missouri. When I was flying in this morning, you guys looked off the green, compared to where where I've been in the last 10 days. But, uh, you know, we've got neighbors that are selling cows, uh, whether that's because of drought or profitability, shrinking the cow herd. Uh, We're already seeing it in our region in the sale barn prices of these calves. Uh, Manhattan, Kansas yesterday, some of these calves were selling uh, north of two bucks a pound and so I think that leverage is already coming back to the cow-calf sector. We haven't quite seen it yet and uh, in fed cow prices this morning we traded 8,000 head in Kansas at $1.36 uh, but we are projecting this next, actually these grass cattle that are coming in right now that will finish in December and January should be, uh, I think we might be surprised what those calves sell for. Yeah don't think any much different um
2: uh we had an economist speak at ncda last last week and uh, his projection down was more like five percent production uh, overall down uh with uh, with exports only dropping maybe like four percent so maybe just a little more production than what usda is showing but our exports continue to be good better than our actual production so i, I think that's a positive note that you know we're creating the product that that the world is demanding, you know, and that's something we need to always keep our eye on. But, you know, it's, it's really disappointing, right? If you looked at the retail price of the, the last couple of years and our, I mean, our continued um, uh, uh, low prices at the, at the farm gate, at, at the calf level and the, and the stocker level, and that really what it does to our rural communities over the long haul. Uh, We've we got a lot less cows gonna be out there that's less feed sold, that's less pharmaceutical sold, that's less for every one of these rural communities. And everybody, what we really, hopefully, is we do a better job of leveling out these cycles, so it's less boom and bust, and,
0: and where we have a, a more sustainable uh, cycle for our, for our communities. Okay, we're kind of tickling around the edges here, just you know, as we think about economic conditions. We talked a little bit today about cost of production, fertilizer costs, especially hammer and cow calf producers. You look at energy costs. Uh, Dr. Ben Brown mentioned labor as a major factor as well. Talk to us from your perspective about just these economic pressures that we're feeling, cost of production. What you're hearing, Tyrell, I'm especially interested, you know, from the processing side. You know, one of the the reasons that I heard the family and AFG talk about for coming to Missouri is coming too late, like getting to a place where, where you've got an accessible pool of, of workers. So maybe talk. Maybe let's start with you, Tyrell, and talk about the economic conditions, costs of just costs that you're experiencing
1: within the processing side. So I started with AFG in 2007. Right now, in the last probably three years. Our what we can what we call our kill costs have more than doubled since when since when I began. So and most of that is in those those past three years. Um, labor has become and I know it's not just unique to, to my part of the industry, but just laser focused. We 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 invest so much time and effort on retention on on our human resource uh, departments, um, we recruit people. I mean, Mexico, um, the Dominican, uh, it's it's intense. Um, we are not, the industry isn't ready for automation yet. We're, I think that's probably the long-term direction, but these inflationary pressures are, are going to continue in, in our sector of the business as well. Um, yeah i I guess it concerns me somewhat what that will do for uh if that puts a ceiling on beef demand but um have of beef has weathered that really well so far so for that to continue okay sean
3: well uh the labor thing is something that's weighing very heavily on my uh, organization right now you know there's only so much automation that we can do we've seen some considerable turnover here in the last uh, 12 to 18 months we've been able to replace that uh, but we're replacing it with less qualified help uh, the statistics alone suggest that the largest most talented workforce ever to exist in our nation the baby boomers they're retiring in mass and we have a smaller generation to begin with that's replacing them and you know this generation that's replacing them didn't start working at 14 years old like I did or wasn't side dad driving the tractor when they were eight years old like I did. And so in many cases, these young people that we're hiring, are, they're just not equipped and we're having to train them. It's, we're having to start clear at the bottom. You know, equipment, uh, feed trucks that two years ago cost me $165,000 brand new. Uh, I just bought one a couple weeks ago. It's $235,000. And so, you know, my sector at this point i don't think has passed those costs along we're just eating them at this point but at, at some point that's going to have that's something that's going to have to be addressed i mean ultimately we all have to be profitable but uh to to the point of made over here maybe one of my other concerns from an inflationary standpoint is at one point at one point do does a consumer say you know what tonight we're having we're having an alternative protein uh just because of the the price effectiveness or price point that uh, beef has had and, and that concerns me as well from a recessionary conversation god i don't i'm not
2: feeling any different than everybody here in the crowd uh, you know about the one the price point maybe we might also keep in mind is that uh, Chicken and, and pork, poultry uh, products, and pork both are rising in price too. Uh, so we'll see how that shakes out. You know, do they they get cheaper? Are they are they doing a better job of managing their inventories? And and we'll have we'll maybe sure we're all rising in, in costs together. So I'm trying to be optimistic in that, in that sense. But I, I I do think that what we're really finding we're, as we kill this cow as you see on the, on the graph, that the the regrowth back into it. I think will be limited unless we drop corn to 350 and beans back to Adrian, eight dollars a bushel or something. I really think growth back into the cow calf sector will be slower than normal, uh, even if we get to dollar fifty, dollar sixty fat cattle. So um, I mean, he's going to have less to uh, less kill, uh, but he's
3: going to be more efficient and do it better, hopefully. So. I would add to what Bruce just said. I mean, the liquidation of the cow herd has largely been because of just unbelievable drought. Uh, I was telling somebody yesterday, I've experienced droughts in my relatively young career in my region, but I don't know that I've ever seen a drought that went from Kansas City, Missouri, to the Pacific Ocean. And that's gonna be the key trigger for when we do start putting some of these heifers back in our herds is when's the west gonna get some rain? okay so
0: we've touched on a little bit today this afternoon you know when you go through cattle economics as we look at the graphs, we always touch on Holcomb and that fire we talk about covid and you think about the bright spots you know in missouri you know, fortunately with the leadership of governor parson and director chin you know we were able to put some of those federal dollars into a meat processor grant program where we've seen of Smaller operations come online and certainly uh, provide options, right, for those of us uh, that, that want to retain ownership and ultimately finish and go direct to, to consumer. But clearly, we know at the grand scale uh, we've seen additional processing capacity. How how do we, as you as we think about these challenges, how do we make sure that that we're maintaining that additional capacity? And, and you know, as we think about this. You know this is a huge deal that American Food Group is expanding and they chose Missouri like for some time we've talked about the chicken or the egg conundrum here Of okay maybe we need to finish more cattle here and then the processor will come well in this case you all have chosen and essentially challenged us in Missouri that okay we've got some work to do and obviously you're gonna be pulling from elsewhere but this is the game-changer that we've been looking for time. like it's big it's a big deal uh, for the state, so to so give us the bright spots in terms of as we think about processing, and then we're going to get into the real sticky stuff. Uh, we're going to get into yeah. You knew I was easing my way into into this conversation. So let's start with the positive in terms of where you think capacity is at and where we're going.
3: You know what? I'm going to jump in front of you. they really am is i want this room to know the magnitude of this decision that afg is doing and why i say that is they're building a processing plant 2400 head a week day before. a day 2400 head a day and primarily bulls and cows yes at a time and they're gonna break around next month i'm guessing it's gonna be 24 months before you can harvest anything or at least 12. Yeah, we're looking at probably a two to three. The, the point of that is this. They're taking on an exceptional risk because in two to three years, when that plant is operational, this cow herd may have gone through the drought and we're building back. And so we have fewer calves to harvest and fewer cows and bulls going to town. And so what they're doing for our industry and your state is a big, big deal and one that shouldn't be taken lightly. I never met Tyrell till today, but that's reality.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it is true. And, and I was going to find a way to, to put a point in that uh, we're talking about the future and the bright spots. Our ownership group is making a $500 million bet that beef demand is going to continue to grow, that producers are going to return to profitability, that overall our industry is going to succeed. So we have as much skin or more in the game than anyone. Um, And that that was well put. Um, And it it touches on the, I guess my answer to your question was I went through, I was here for the 2010 to 12 drought. We we closed a facility after that drought, um, or at the end of that drought, through this one, um, and additionally, I think we lost, I can think of probably four or five other packing facilities in that time frame, that 2012 to, to 14. Uh, through this bottom of this cycle, or in this drought, I can think of that many proposed expansions. So basically the opposite Of the of the last cycle is taking effect right now, and that's that's a big positive for everyone involved in the industry. From the
3: standpoint of my sector of the industry, I mean, beef is still the center
1: of the plate protein.
3: You know, if a couple goes out for a fancy dinner on Friday night, they're they're probably going to be ordering beef. Uh, Beef is the original upcycler, taking byproducts of low value and turning them into one of the highest value proteins that exists on our planet, and I don't think that's going to change. So when people have discretionary income, that's where they're going to spend it. And I think there's a lot of things with the, uh, somebody mentioned climate in their slides. You know, the beef industry, we're doing a lot of great things uh, for the climate, sequestering carbon, and, and uh, my business, and, and the is working on uh, beef labels that have a low carbon footprint claim. And I don't think we have to even change our practices. I think all we have to do is measure it and document it. And uh, the consumer will be willing to pay for that. That's a good one there. I like that.
2: Very good. Yeah, uh, the low carbon beef thing, you know, it's gotten approval now, so uh, it's going to be, be there. Uh, I, I, the, the, I think there is a downside for a lot of the small packers that don't have a well planned uh, future laid out of where they're going to be. They have a competitive advantage. Uh, that I think that that, that will be some way, uh, but um, you know we we can just still be we're still very they are still very efficient, especially the big guys, and so I am not uh, I'm sure not concerned I'm sure not worried about JBS and Tyson's bottom line. I think they've gotten themselves way well healed the last few years. So uh, I, I, I and Mary cougar's even cap Hill has been awesome right the last couple of years. So. Uh, but I do, I do worry for some of the small factors that have come in to do the, the 20 head-a-day deal or whatever here we've had in Missouri and other, other parts of the United States. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, we all take risks, right? We haven't made any money on our cows for five or six years either. Unless Some of you are much better at it than some of the rest of us. So uh, I, I'm
0: confident that we'll, we'll get through that. So. All right. Cattle Market Transparency Act. Let's go there. You ready? Okay. So, Bruce, I would say within our, well, I I guess Sean as well, within NCBA and within American Farm Bureau, uh, cattle markets have been a big topic through policy development the last couple of years. And, And as I think through almost 20 years of being involved in policy within the organization, this certainly ranks up there as one of the most divisive that I've seen within our Bureau. And as we saw this plan on the delegate floor at our national annual meeting, I mean, when you talk about a delegate body of 400 plus and it comes down to a difference of a dozen votes, that just shows you how closely divided um, the industry and, and members are and Missouri specifically Missouri Cattlemen's Missouri Farm Bureau has been very supportive of the cattle market transparency bill as a, as a way to force conversation in Congress. I think all of us would agree, at least on this stage that uh, probably there's agreement on all provisions but, but one and that's the regional uh, minimums on cash trade and, and that's where I want to go and, and get perspective because we heard Dr. Fisher talk about the work that they've done at A&M and the faculty that they've worked with from around the country. You know, Bruce, maybe start with you. you just coming back from summer meeting, and then maybe we can go to Sean since you're also within the NCBA ranks as a state leader. Maybe talk to us about where policy discussions stand within your organization. I, I, I think divisive
2: on the minimum mandatory is accurate. Uh, you know, we got uh, a year, two years ago at NCBA at the Summer Business Group, you know, we, the uh, CalCAF banded together, is mainly against the cow feeding states, and uh, we we were about ten votes apart uh, from uh, at, at that level, and we we debated it for seven hours uh, out, in, out in Colorado. So you know we've there's been a lot of investment into this from affiliates all over the, all over the country. Uh, you know our stance is uh, in, in Missouri has been that we need a minimum mandatory minimum cash trade from every plant and and why we say that and if you'll i wish i had a order of a, a map of it would make it the visual makes it a lot easier for me but if you can go into the state of texas there's three major packing plants in this the west texas right you've got jbs Cargill and tyson and tyson buys a hundred essentially 100% of their cattle by foreign, So, or uh, uh, alternative marketing agreements, right? But the AMA, as you hear the, the, the keyword there. So you only have two bidders if you want to sell cash cattle in Texas. And the same scenario essentially goes on in Kansas. Tyson, National, and Cargill are in Kansas. And what, what we, struggle with here in Missouri is that that's a constant negative pull when we don't have multiple bidders on a cap. And I, I can't imagine anybody in this crowd today that's selling calves or stockers that just calls up and says, I only got one bid today, I guess I'll take it. Would you do that today with a non-storable commodity like that? I think you would pick up the phone and call another one and another one, but there are no other. There are no others in those, those states, and so it, it constantly has a drag. And so you know what happens is the the, the, the professors and all tell us a lot of these scary added costs. Basically, what what the legislation does is makes Tyson be a cash buyer on about 10% of their cattle in Texas and about 15% in in Kansas. Uh, They already meet those demands in Nebraska and Iowa and other places, Joslin, Illinois. Uh, And so what what we're trying to do is make all the Packers be participants. And what what really makes it matter today is that however our segment of of our process is today, think about 10 and 15 years from now as we vertically integrate our industry. And and, and let's be realistic. It's not going to look the same, right? All the other segments of agriculture are very integrated in that sense. Why will ours not change and evolve? And what we don't want to do is not to have a price discovery between the packer and the cattle feeder. And the large corporate cattle feeder doesn't necessarily want higher prices, right? We want them at the cow cattle level. Those those big feedlots aren't looking for higher. Right, just just raises their cost of doing business. So, you know, think about what they're taking. And I don't know where in the world these professors come up with twenty dollars a head to negotiate your cattle. I, I, mean, Sean's brother negotiates their cattle. I doubt they figure anything near that kind of cost of doing business there. So, um, I, I so they a lot of scare tactics. Um, uh, but that's that's where we come down, and we're just looking at it from the long haul do we create make sure there's still competition between the packer and the cattle feeder for those cattle to create a uh to price the cattle that comes back to our calves here in missouri sorry i probably got a little long
0: there to yeah. go no. all right it's pretty complicated so it's hard to, it's hard to say on you know, just it a, is, it's lines. a it is a complex topic and that's why i'm anxious to hear from sean because my guess is you know we see this a little differently than kansas farm bureau my guess KLA looks at it a little differently than MCA. Certainly, you've got to wear the feedlot owner hat,
3: so take it away. Well, so I do have to, I mean, I am a representative of KLA, but I'm also my own man and I have my own opinions. My job as a custom cattle feeding operation is to make my customers as much money as I possibly can. That's my sole responsibility and we do that by utilizing access to a bunch of different markets and throughout most of our history as a feedlot that has largely been through amas i want to reiterate something that dr fisher said and that is don't lose sight of the fact that the cow the cow calf sector and the feedlot sector pushed amas on the packers not the other way around and uh have things evolved absolutely you mentioned the word divisive And I think this is a very divisive issue. We're not divided on the fact that there is something that needs addressed here. Where we're divided on is the correct way to go about that. And I'm very reluctant to allow our federal government to step in and push that on us. One of the things that gives me great pause with the mandate portion of things is the fact that it, this is a mandate on the packer to buy a certain way. And so, in my operation, we market 80,000 head a year. Now, that may sound like a big number, but Tyrell's killing 2,400 head a day. You know, so put that into perspective. 80,000 head a year in the whole scope of the feedlot industry, my brother and I are not that big. So my question is, to our congressman, and, and nobody's been able to provide me with a good answer of this, is who's gonna get access to the AMAs and who's not. My fear is as a smaller feedlot that represents our operations that look an awful lot like yours. My average customer has fewer than 200 cows. Uh, but yet we market over 92% choice in all of our marketings for the last 10 years. That's how I get value back to ranchers like yourselves and for operations like you guys have. And without access to AMAs, that's gonna get very difficult. Uh, The flip side of that is, I am good friends. One of my my mentors, uh, I did an internship in a 120,000 head yard when I was in college and this man and I have remained close friends. And he is now the CEO of one of the largest corporate cattle feeding operations uh, in the U.S. And he, in a conversation to me, said, if I have my buyers sitting in the sale barn and the day I buy those calves, if I don't know how I can market those calves, my price just went down because my risk went up and so I, I think this issue is a very emotional one which is why we've become so divided I have my perspective as a, as a custom feedlot operator I also know the perspective of KLA and NCPA, which I tend to agree with but I think we all need to take um, some time and really listen to the economists I don't have time to sit around and study this issue day in and day out. I got a feedlot to run. I got 40 employees to manage. I've got crop ground to sit around and watch burn up in a drought. You know, so so even with my experience marketing cattle every week of the year, I still don't consider myself an expert. And and Dr. Fisher mentioned Stephen Koontz. And Stephen and I testified alongside each other at the Senate Ag Committee back in April, and his summary was. Costs are at least hundreds of millions of dollars and more likely billions of dollars with a mandate. These costs will be leveled at cow calf producers nationwide and consumers of beef both domestically and internationally. He has no skin in this game. He does not have a dog in this fight. He is purely an analyst. And if he's supposed to be the expert, I'm no economist, but I'm going to take that opinion very, very seriously. all right Tyrell
0: you're a packer well, <laughs> so, so, so here's the deal so you know we talk about the big four and I've heard Mr. Rosen uh, talk himself say, you know it's okay that the attention's on the big four you guys are number five right I mean you're that's the right. fifth you're the fifth largest meat processor in the country that,
1: that nobody knows so what's your perspective well to put it in context we're being as we We are in the cow and bull sector for the majority of our business. We participate in about 600 sale bonds across the country every week. We do not purchase cattle currently through any formula trades. We do forward contract uh, Holstein and and Dairy Cross steers and heifers. Um, The rest of our trades are all negotiated either Grade and yield or carcass based trades, or more live on the hoof. They're consequently all reported to mandatory price reporting. Um, so that that's the mechanics of what we're doing right now. So their perspective is, is much more in depth. I would just add that going forward, as we step into needing the additional capacity. One way we may be able to compete is by targeting uh, high grading, high quality grading cattle, um, and industry has done an outstanding job of, of producing more of that demanded product. Um, and with, if we, if we were to, I don't want to say that the. And the incentives for the higher grade cattle, but that may be a mechanism that would help us compete long term. So I would I, I don't look to limiting that access.
0: Okay, I think I've kicked the door open just wide enough. Bruce, you grab the mic, and then we're going to go. Let's go ten minutes. Let's get questions. Yeah, I
2: just just the coots numbers and all, and then they do I've been in in working groups in NCBA where Dr. Cook steps behind and he's getting paid by NCBA to do the research and and, and Colorado and some
3: of those folks. So I
2: I know who's who's paying for for the research. So uh, anyway, just AMAs are are a wonderful thing. I sell them, myself. I trade them, I use them on our cattle. Every, almost all the cattle we feed are used. I sell on a grid or AMA. Some of them I feed, if I have to give up 10% of my production and trade it in a cash basis to create price discovery I'm willing to do that that doesn't guarantee I can get a higher price because we have price discovery but we do have competition at that level supply and demand will work itself out but if we don't have multiple bidders we don't have competition for the cattle that's the problem especially in the southern plains and so all of a sudden, we make Tyson buy 15% of their cattle in Kansas cash. It's mandated. You don't think the cattle that were they were trading AMA, Cargill won't try to pick up or National won't try to pick up on an AMA, right? And to, to achieve that, that's just going to move. That's just making them moving the numbers around. What we're trying to do is make sure that we have multiple bidders in the marketplace all the time. I mean, we're we're well under 10 percent now in Kansas. Uh, I mean, excuse me, in West Texas, we've gotten down to uh, uh, less than 15 percent. I think in Kansas again uh, recently. Uh, Cash. I don't know the number exactly, but just to put one last thing in perspective, uh, you trade one dollar 36 in Kansas again. Texas did yesterday a dollar 35 for fat cattle. Iowa would trade on an average of about a dollar 41 uh, because you have multiple bidders and multiple options up there. There's not, the cattle aren't that much better in Iowa than they are in Kansas, if you look at the average grades, or in Nebraska. So, uh, but but th- th- you just need to, there's a lot of cattle in Kansas. There's a lot of them trucking that you safe. say. That's a bit
3: but, misleading from the standpoint that we've been getting 140 out of Kansas by going there. The reason they're paying so much in those states is there's not enough cattle to fill the kill capacity which is why they're coming so far down into Kansas and I'm the, I'm the most eastern feedlot in the state of Kansas so we've been shipping cattle up there because there's not enough so it's a supply and demand issue it has nothing to do with quality uh, they just don't have the cattle right now that are finished and market ready so I think that's a bit of a stretch okay, okay. make it two dollars make the spread but there is you have, have, have to make
2: the first, there's more, there's more, there's more. there's more there's more there's more cattle there's more competition for the cattle in Iowa, and when there is, when there is a shortage of cattle,
0: they're going to get more. So, Alright, I know there's a hand out there. Who's got a question? Yes, Rick. Thank you for your perspective, gentlemen. I appreciate it, and as a beef chairman of the Farm Bureau, I was scared to death about this coming up in my meeting here in a little bit, because I didn't know how it was going to happen, so I'm glad you guys at least click it on for a little bit. I'm on the Farm Bureau Task Force here. How do we as cattle producers get this safety net written into a farm bill like our grain producing friends have? You know, that's that's a tough tough, tough one to follow. And if you look at uh, net farm income, how much
2: of it comes from a government program, those of us in the beef business, we're on the zero end of it.
3: You're exactly right. Uh, I'm a farmer and a cattle feeder. I identify as a cattle feeder and who had to learn to farm, uh, but I didn't even, oops. But you're right. Now, I, what we've started utilizing uh, in our business and amongst our customers as well is this LRP. And it is a very, very functional uh, risk management strategy that also leaves the top side open. Bruce and I got to listen to a guy present on LRP and how we utilized that in our operations last week out in Reno, and it's working. We've been working, actually Bruce and I are working with the same guy we discovered earlier this morning. Uh, but that, I would say the PRF, especially at the calf level, is, is a program that you need to be, when I say PRF, pasture, rangeland, uh, anyway, and forage. Uh, But to your, the other thing I would say is we've got to educate ourselves, and we've got to get different perspectives. I need to hear Bruce's perspective. I need to hear the Packers' perspective. On my way here today, I listened to a podcast. Uh, I would encourage you guys to go listen. (laughs) Find the podcast Practically Ranching with Matt Perrier, and Matt, over the course of four or five different episodes in the last two months, has been tackling this project head on. And I don't say that because I, have, I was one of the people that he interviewed, but he, today he interviewed a guy from Cargill, a guy very high up in Cargill. He's interviewed a sale barn owner. Uh, you know, He's, he's going to keep digging deeper, but this is a conversation where we need to take the emotion out of it and then we need to hear the perspectives of everybody else and ultimately try to find something that distrib- distributes the consumer's dollar across the beef supply chain.
2: yeah I, 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 I listened to that same podcast, uh Gillick from I think he grew up in Odessa, actually. Okay. Yeah, he grew up in Odessa. You yeah, know, good trivia for all you guys out there? Can you name the CEOs from Odessa, Missouri? Jim Fitterling, and was at Dow Chemical, runs Dow Chemical today, right? the from Odessa, ran that was chief operating officer of my and now Gillock runs the, the protein division for Cargill, all from the same little town, East Kansas City. Anyway, I got off subject. You, you know, I'm, I'm messing up, I'm wasting time But I, I, well, I LRP, I think, you know, you can see it on the chart. Now that they've raised the subsidies a year and a half ago towards about a 30 to 50% subsidy uh, is, a, is a great product that we, we can all utilize. You know, you can be now, you can use LRP on your calves that have not even calved yet. You can start looking that far out to lock-in problems. I think the pasture uh, insurance needs some work And I I think that's if we could do anything for our cow-calf sector and our stocker system, uh, that would be some way to better manage that forage risk. Uh, So uh, I I think that would be one place that'd be. And then encourage more use of LRP. I just think it's gonna keep going. It's gonna make sure it has plenty of dollars now I, I don't know about that. You know that. You know when it gets to a certain point, do they slow down the subsidy? Well, then that's going to, that's going to
3: kill it. Uh, but if we can get more using it, that really takes a lot of that price risk out. When you said PRF needs some work, the first thought that came to mind was, well, because it rains here. I'm jealous of you guys. <laughs> I'd rather not click on PRF and just get the rain. <laughs> yeah. That's why you live in the desert, though, right? Yeah.
2: You know? <laughs> you can pick up and move on over here because we got a packing plant over here now. We need to to help Come on up and
3: keep some cam.
0: Adam, do we have time for one more, or is that it? We need to go to break? We still have uh, time for one or two more. Okay. Any other questions for this distinguished panel? There you go, yes. Keith. So, you know,
2: there's... Take a while.
0: You say hurry before you forget the question. Yes, yeah, that's what I said.
3: Okay. <laughs> so, both are distinguished gentlemen on the production, term, the production side. You know, the line has been drawn. You know, respect both opinions. But
1: AMAs are based on the cap negotiated trade. as AMAs get larger, the negotiated trade
3: goes away. So, you know, there has to be, either there's going to have to be mandatory transparency on all transactions or there's going to have to be negotiated trade For the based on that is the way I see it. I just, I would like to hear more elaboration, you know, if we're going to stand on this principle, how are we going, because everyone in this room can agree that things went way wonky in the last two years and and that way wonky in the last two years is what's led i mean i'm guilty of it the summer of 2020 i was helping Custer. i literally had men my father's age in my office crying trying to figure out how to keep the operation together the family ranch, uh and i was carrying that stress and it i mean it was bad i i i it was all i could deal with trying to help these people navigate CFAP and all this other stuff and all the, I personally had cattle on feed that had been contracted and I couldn't move and my line of credit couldn't handle that very well. Uh, But with that said, you know, we, up until five years ago, my business model, we didn't hardly cash trade any cattle and we never gave any thought to it. As a matter of fact, we knew we could make more money for our customers by doing grid Premiums across everything. Uh, this conversation has been pushed to the forefront in a time where things were really emotional and we've got to take a step back now and I'm with you. I think more transparency, every trade should be reported. Expanding LMR reporting regions, bringing in Minnesota with Iowa, Wyoming. I think those are all good things. More data is always valuable. Uh, may not agree with this. I, you know, I don't... If a college professor says that it's a shockingly low number of cash trade needed to uh, have accurate price discovery, well, that's, what, that's his job. And maybe Dr. Fisher, I think a lot of that data came out of it now, that said we really don't need a huge volume of negotiated cash trade to effectively set a foundation price. Would we have ever, in the 90s and early 2000s, said we're gonna price 80% of the best cattle off of 20% of the commodity cattle that we're cash trading? No, but that's where we're at. And I do think we need to find a better mousetrap, uh, in the words of Matt Perrier on that podcast. But I don't feel like, I don't feel like it's good to have our government uh, mandating that for us. And here's why. I don't expect our government to be perfect I don't expect politicians to never make a mistake. The problem I have with politicians is when they make a mistake and make bad policy, they never walk it back. They never say, you know what, that new tax program didn't work, we're gonna do away with it. And you and I are stuck with it and we have to operate under that. And that's my biggest fear here, especially when economists say, be careful what you wish for, because if it turns out bad, like Dr. Fisher says their data says it will, how are we gonna get out from underneath it once that happens? I, I just want i was just gonna follow up real quick on the,
2: as far as, you know, Kutz's numbers are about 10% in Texas and about 15% in Kansas that he did five, six years ago when he went through, through, through the numbers. And, 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 and yes, I was quite in the minority five years ago thinking we need to do something different about the way we cash trade, but never let a good crisis go to waste. Right? And that's, we finally got it. We find a lot of us, a lot, a lot of cattle feeders, smaller cattle feeders, don't like the, the direction when we've gone to this much, this little cash trade in the Southern Plains. So this gave us an opportunity to bring, bring it forward from the, cru- during the crisis. Or we just continued. We're going to go to no cash trade in Texas. We're going to go to 5% in Kansas. How do we discover price on those animals? To get the AMA, we are not negative. I am not negative AMA. I absolutely not. All I'm trying to do is figure out a way to keep some multiple bidders on my cattle because I've been I've it's been seven eight years on cash cattle in Kansas on feed in Scott City before I've ever had more than one uh, packer bid on cash. This isn't just happened, guys. The last three years this has been going on
3: for a long time.
0: One more down, okay. I'll be brief. This question is for Tyrell there. You, you had mentioned earlier, trying to change the subject here just a little bit too, but you had mentioned earlier that the kill costs were t- double what they were not very long ago. So when you talk kill costs, are we talking kill only, or are we talking all the way through production, Of what are those costs that gone up? I know labor is one, but you know other than labor, what has gone up times two?
1: Uh, our our investment in in food safety, talent, and and our um, staff that we that we apply toward um, FSIS and the constant uh, daily effort to, to continue operating under inspection. So you
3: would say that it's regulation.
1: Very very much so. Yes. Yes.
3: Thank. You. You know, on that
2: cost thing also, you might, I think I've heard the stats from these packers that they've gone from an average cost of about $14 an hour to $24 an hour just in the last two years, right? And I don't know which, your average wage is going to, with benefits is going to be six figures for the entire plan, right? If you take, them all, take everybody at, at this place. So just think of how many dollars that is coming into Warren County. But anyway, that, that's the number 14 to 24 for those,
0: those uh, meat cut cutters. I think that was a mic drop by Chris Rundick there on making your point, Chris. Um, well, we, we've covered a lot with this panel, and I think we can all agree on that what we want is more transparency. I and mean, we do know that. And, and the frustration that we have felt over the last few years reached the boiling point when we can't get the answers, right? And... and And sometimes, you have to take these opportunities to force the difficult conversation. Now, I don't know a single person here that wants and is begging for more government (laughs) in anything, but it begs the question, how can we do better? Which is exactly why we wanted this panel up here as you all get ready to, to break into your Commodity Advisory Committees and do your work this afternoon. And the other takeaway from this panel is now you have a face for American Foods Group with one of their own, with Tyrell being here. And and again, uh, I personally know the rose of family folks, and and we couldn't ask, we could not ask for a better partner as we think about changing the game here in Missouri. And Tyrell, please give our regards to, to your leadership and the family. We are just so excited to welcome them into the show me state and, and certainly we're going to work hard to make sure that that they are successful because they want us to be successful too. So, so let's give this panel a hand. Uh, have those instructions, including as you all take your break, please enjoy visiting with the innovators who are here, uh, who are set up in the, in the atrium area as well. Wow, what a afternoon! Let's give this panel another round of applause. It's,
3: you know, it's sometimes it's not easy to get up here and knowing that there's uh, different perspectives on things, and and they all did a very good job of uh, you know covering this territory and explaining where where their perspectives are on this. And so, great job to
0: the panelists, and thank you to all the presenters this afternoon.